Hello, welcome back to another edition of the At Sports Bald Podcast, a Baltimore Sports Collectibles production. Uh, I am honored today to be joined by Dr. James Beckett. You may uh, recognize the name. He uh, spent many years in the publishing and magazine industry. Um, just kidding. He is the godfather of pricing. Um, I uh, have lots of questions for him. We've gotten to know each other a little bit. Uh, and uh, the more I talk to him, the more I uh, really want to keep the conversation going. So I think we're using each other's podcast as a way to kind of uh, just uh, pick, pick each other's brains. So uh, I was honored to be on yours and an official welcome and, and glad to have you on uh, mine. Delighted, Danny. Looking forward to it. All right. So um, I am of the age where I grew up as a dealer um, using the Beckett Price Guide. But clearly, the, the Beckett Price Guide didn't start in the 90s when I was a dealer. So uh, for those of you who don't, for those listeners or viewers who don't know, um, you have a background in statistics and, and coming out of college. Can you talk about how that world back then before, you know, everybody was tracking every penny, you know, uh, how, how that evolved into what, what led to be the, the guide for everyone? Well, back before price guides, they weren't tracking every penny. Uh, cards weren't worth as much, and and there was a lot of trading going on. When people were not that excited about selling cards because cards didn't go for that much, but you'd be excited about trading your tougher stuff for somebody else's tougher stuff. That's why regionals were a big deal. If if you had uh, you traded with somebody in the other part of the country that had stuff you didn't have, so it was more than that, more of that. But the hobby could never really grow unless there was kind of a universal accepted price guide, at least that was my, my thought. And so when I was, I kind of got back into it when I was finished with college, but I was in grad school. So I was working on, and I got my PhD in statistics in 75. So while I was in grad school, I got pretty deeply involved as a, as a, as a getaway from heavy academics and uh, was right on the, on the cusp of the, uh, the, the growth in this area with my good friend, Gervis Ford, who was older than me. We started collecting club. We uh, had the first conventions here and, and it was terrific. So when I got out of grad school, I wasn't thinking about going, there were no jobs for being a full-time sports card guy, but uh, I was a professor. I had a brief thing in the army uh, that, I, and that I was officer in the army. And then I went into uh, teaching and my te first teaching job was in Bowling Green State University up in Ohio, which is right in the thick of the Midwest, where there were just it, it really took my collecting and knowledge to another level. All the shows that were within because by '75 there were there were a lot more shows and buying trips were coming in, and I did I did that a bunch. So I, I really amassed a great collection, and and again to to your point, more than knowledge such that in 76, 1976, I announced the first kind of price survey that I did that was published in Trader Speaks and Sports Collectors Digest, kind of a free thing. And then after I compiled kind of the summary prices, kind of like one price for for just, for, it wasn't a superstar oriented thing. It was just kind of what, what cards generally go for. That was very well received. I gave it away for free, did that a couple more years. And then in 79 is when I did the first book. And that was a more comprehensive, every card, uh, three conditions, uh, pretty pretty big labor of love, which 
looking back, I'd like to think it was emphasis on love, but I think it was emphasis on labor it was a lot of work because there was nothing. Now, every other book since then has was easier in the sense that you already had a template and you had feedback from the dealers and the collectors. We really wanted both sides of the table that, oh, this is too low or this is too high. And, you know, that we, we had to distinguish between this is your opinion as opposed to this is what you're selling them for or this is what you would pay. You say, I don't have it, but I would pay this much. And if they were somebody that was uh, that we really uh, respected, you think, well, it can't be listed at this in the price guide if this guy has a standing offer and he's legit for double that price. So so the prices started moving and it got bigger and bigger. And then 84 started the magazine, which was monthly. And that really, you know, really launched it to, to a more popular thing as, as opposed to a once a year book. Uh, Changed the game. So it cracked me up, but I want to take a step back because I, I think people just forget it. You know, there was no, there was no internet polls. There was no eBay listings. So when you talk about surveying for prices, logistically, can you talk about the physical process of what that was? Was it phone call? Was, was it, it was more, I mailed out and, and I mailed out a bunch to the, the leading dealers of the day. And it was like a, depending on how you want to count, it was the equivalent of about an eight page survey that okay. was line by line, uh, two columns where you'd, you'd, uh, you'd put in the prices. And I, I think I initialized it with some, I think I had some sample prices for them to work off. So they weren't it completely in a vacuum and they were encouraged to leave it alone. If, if they didn't have insights, if they weren't actively trading, buying or selling in that. So uh, and it was published in SCD and Trader Speak. So I got I got uh, I'm I'm sure even the first year I got hun- I got hundreds of responses. I didn't get thousands, but I got hundreds of responses in the mid mid hundreds. And so that was enough, especially on the more popular stuff, to uh, to put some kind of average prices of what things were selling for. And then when the book came out, uh, when the book was contemplated, it was kind of an extension of that. Where by then, after three years of doing this announcing this survey and and being such an active show dealer i didn't have a store at that point but i, I knew the 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 um the opinion leaders in the industry you know i've talked about the hospitality rooms and the, and and the, the shows were a lot smaller a lot more relational you, you knew who the guys were that were the the market movers of the day and so i was and so yeah i'd pick up the phone and call them but i wasn't going to call 500 people but I was going to call, you know, some some key people, uh, and I had so much of the mail stuff. Again, it'd be nice if there was email or internet, but a lot of stamps, a lot of stamps. Well, this, this stamps is probably a nickel or a dime. All right, I'm totally fascinated by this, and so I'm going off the rails for a second. Who picked the cards on the list? Did the cards change? And if they didn't change, was this like the original card stock market? No, I mean it, it was basically more of the. It was more series oriented because people were more complete set oriented. So there were very few superstars in there. It was mainly a common card, 52 tops, one to 80, you know, red back, black back, tops, 52 tops, 311 to 407, uh, high numbers, you know, what do you, so, and it was expected that the stars would go for more. But even in those days, the stars didn't go for way more. Right. But uh, I put it, I sprinkled in a few stars, but it was, again, the hobby was so much about completing sets that they just needed to know what series were tougher, 
which was not widely known at that time. There was, there was a mystique about high numbers and not all sets had high numbers. And so, uh, and, and again, all the regionals, all the, all the T cards, the R cards, the E cards, the, you know, the W cards, all the different things that were kind of from American card catalog from Jefferson Burdick. I mean, the nomenclature anyway. And so once that was in there and you had a, you had a baseline, the T205s were maybe slightly tougher than T206s, you know, T207s were even better. You know, you just, yeah. So it, it fell into place with a little bit of a hierarchy of the sets. And then, but, but why the book was important, because it broke down every card. And again, that was, that was uh, to a, a much greater degree of research. Was there a concept of quote-unquote modern versus quote-unquote vintage in the late 70s? Or was it kind of... Okay. No, there was no respect for the new cards. Right. <laughs> in the 70s, you know, guys would say, why are you even putting that in the book? You know, hmm. because at that point, people, they would just, you know, Larry Fritch would just sell the set. You know, you, right. you didn't need to collect card by card for anything in the 70s, or certainly the late 70s. But there were still people buying individual cards to fill in their sets. And so I did not listen to those people that said, hey, don't just do the older cards, just do the better cards. And I said, no, I, I think if the hobby's really going to grow, it needs to be all the cards. And uh, they need to get the respect. Maybe not now, but eventually now we're looking at those 79 cards that were dogs at the time. There's a few good cards in there. Yeah, I mean, if you know, you, Smith, you know, you, if, you have, if you have an Eddie Murray centered, Eddie you know, Murray centered in '78. Yeah. I mean, that, that that anyway. So that okay, that just fascinated me on 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 the mechanics of that. Um, you know, I'm a data guy, uh, so I just love how you got that. But you you transitioned into exactly one of the main things I wanted to talk about today is I've never actually been a set builder. Um, I've never kind of fessed up to that. Um, I do smaller types of collections. So being from Baltimore, the 54 Tops Oriole set, the year they moved here was a collection I went after. Um, that, that was, you know, kind of a very specific team collection. Uh, I have decided that I want to take on the 57 Tops set. Um, it's not everybody's favorite set. I, I'm, I'm not going to fight people for their favorite. I like it for some of the historical significance of the standardized card, the stats on the back. And once again, being the Homer, it's your Brooks and Frank rookie year. Um, and I happen to love the Kofax that year who I also PC. So I am going to say as somebody who's never really done set building, what is the, the, the most economical and quickest way? Is it eBay lots? Is, you know, where would I even begin? on something like this. Um, yeah. Well, if you're, you only want Orioles and you're, no, you're I, want, I know this is the first, I want to do the whole 57 top oh. set. Well, yeah. uh, you know, buying a set is sketchy sometimes now, because if they're not all graded, then it's, it's hard to go card by card from eBay or even in one of the auction houses, unless you, uh, unless you previewed it. But uh, Huggins and Scott is famous for their treasure chest lots and they'll have you know groups of, of partial sets and things like that. Again, the, if they're not graded, it's suspect that they're going to be, you know, the better cards might be rougher. Uh, but the way I collected sets 
if you just go back in the day, this is I collect I sets by buying collections. And if I had a uh, a partial set, I would go. I would piece by piece complete it. But I might buy two collections. Again, in the seventies, the cards in the fifties weren't. They were. They were like cards from the nineties now or the two thousands. So they weren't distant memories. And so you could still buy them. So you'd buy two partial sets, put them together, sell off your dupes or trade them for the cards you needed. Voila, you had a complete set. Again, prices were a lot lower. The rookie card thing was not as much of a thing. Uh, condition was not as big a deal for, for most people. In fact, when the condition freaks came along, they, it was just, they, they weren't, they weren't, appreciated i mean they were ahead of their time um but it was almost like i say unsporting you know that they would cherry pick all of your perfect and they just spend all day at your table looking for the few perfect cards they could get and you just couldn't you couldn't charge them double you you could barely even upcharge them so that maybe who was the smart one probably they were uh but uh you know pre-grading were there trim cards in there Again, there wasn't any incentive to trim to defraud because they they weren't worth that much. Right, they really counterfeited. They weren't. But could a, a little kid have have, have uh, cut down his fifty two tops to make them standard size? Yeah, that happens sometimes. But that yeah. wasn't intentionally trying to defraud somebody. That was just that's just the way you got it. And so, they went for a lot less. But so your sets are they graded? My sets are gone. And most of them. I kept a few. Yeah. Okay. And um, I, I definitely would not be graded. I never had graded sets. Okay. So, so. You know, I went to where I had sets. I sold, I sold off uh, most of the sets that didn't have sentimental value uh, when I started the company because I was kind of divesting. Uh, but I had some extra stars and things like that that were not part of the sets. As I've said, I, I kept some extra good cards along the way as, as trade material, because in this, in this, in the, in the seventies, your, your better cards were worth more than cash. Right. As currency for trading for stuff that you really wanted. Yeah, no. And today, sadly, depending on the player and the day and the ranking and the sports center highlights, it, it, it can change, you know, I, at the Chantilly show, um, I traded a lot of minor league Bowman first prospects and I'm a diehard baseball minor league guy um, for a, a second year, Lou Alcindor graded and, and a Clemente graded. And, and, you know, it, it's to me, I'd rather have those two than the four or five prospects. Um, financially though, if one of those prospects hit, I may end up losing over the next year or two, but I'll, but all my cards were wrong. So I, you know, I, I feel safer um, in that trade, but you're right. The trade, the commodity was a lot easier than the cash deal would have been. Yeah. Again, there, uh, just to go back to the old days, there, there was no prospecting going on. <laughs> either either oh, sure. I was a popular player. He wasn't. And, and I would say that most people were complete set collectors, but it was considered honorable to be a team, a team guy. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody came around and they were all they wanted were Baltimore Orioles. That person was esteemed. That person wasn't looked down upon as ah, oh, you're you're not you're not a serious collector. No, in fact, they sometimes they were more serious, more passionate. And some of the collections that now come out 
of people that were, you know, the Phillies like Bill White, you know, that, that just passed away. He had everything Phillies. Well, that is so cool to see that in an auction now. And other Phillies collectors, the Phillies apparently having a resurgence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, so, so that was esteemed. Even to be a player collector, especially if it was an obscure player collector, that was esteemed that you were a serious fan of baseball. There, there was w- much more linkage between a, being a fan of the sport and then a collector of the cards. I, I just don't remember people that had didn't have a clue about baseball, but just like baseball cards. They, they were big-time fans. If you had a choice of going to a game or going to a card show, I don't know. They, they'd probably want to do both. I, I couldn't agree more. I think you have to be a fan of both over any period of time. You know, um, my daughter collected pennies very seriously for three months. Um, and for those three months, she, she was a sponge on pennies. But that was not a long-term passion because she had no love for pennies. Um, and, and you uh, made an interesting comment one of the times, um, and, and forgive me for getting the, the name of the minor league team, with the stunning stadium not far from uh, from you guys in, um, in, in Texas. Um, I forget the minor. I forget what the minor league team is. You, you guys were raving about the stadium um, that it's. Uh, oh, the Frisco Rough Riders. Yes. Yeah, it's like. Uh, it's like an old time ballpark that's like shrunk. I mean, the field is normal size, but everybody's there aren't huge. I mean, everybody's close to the action. Uh, there's a, a swimming pool in right field. There's a, a barbecue porch in left field. Uh, it's, you know, it's 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 a throwback. And so it's so rich. And some of the guys that live up near there, um, I've been in some games here, but. They just—I mean—it's way easier to get to than the than Arlington, so it's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I took batting practice there one time. Did you really? Yeah. And uh, you know, it looked like—I mean, just—I just thought, I just thought, you know, I wonder if I can get one out. You know, if they just—you know—they're soft tossing you. Right. And uh, my—you know—I'm left-handed. You know, and I, my first one was a dribbler you know, to second base. I thought, okay, well, okay, I'm going to time this just right. Next one, I hit a fierce rope over the second baseman's head that probably died in the outfield. (laughs) Are you, are are you now selling me on exit velocity? (laughs) Exit velocity. I don't have that anymore. (laughs) Uh, So I didn't get to the warning track on a roll, Danny. So, uh, so my, I think, and this was 10 years ago or something. So I, I think my best days are behind me. But even then, you know, it's, it's, you know, for a regular guy, you know, hitting a ball over a fence is not, it's not a golf ball. (laughs) You know, you you could, I could hit a golf ball over the fence pretty easily, but uh, hitting a baseball over the fence, a pitch baseball, whatever, you know, any kind of a, even with a fungo bat, maybe I'd have trouble. So. Oh yeah. I mean, it was fun back in the day and I didn't have a lot of power, but I hit for average. I was, uh, let's say, would I be four tool? (laughs) I, I, I was, I wouldn't uh, have been drafted. No, I, Rex Barney, the uh, former Dodger who was the Orioles uh, uh, stadium announcer said he had a fastball. The only problem was he couldn't hit the side of a barn. Yeah. Uh, I, that, that was kind of me. I ended up at third base because hopefully the first base was a big enough target that I could get anywhere near it. But uh, you know, anyway, so 
thank you for the advice on putting the sets together. That 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 this is my first endeavor. My, my, I mean, this is I'm kind of embarrassed to say I've just never really put the time for a personal. If you uh, buy them one at a time, you're going to wind up paying about double. If you buy a whole group of them and then fill it, you might get such a good deal on the group, uh, especially if it's like a group that has no stars in it. I don't, I don't know that that's the way to go. But if you had a, a group, you know, partial sets sometimes sell at a huge discount especially if you're missing the Brooks Robinson, you know, or, or the Kofax. So if you were to, well, again, you, you could, those are easy to find, you know, the better cards are easier to find. You should really do a show about sports card insights. I'm trying to every yeah. day, Danny, I'm taking I mean, no, off though. <laughs> that, but, but that's like, that's good advice for people because, you know, like I said, when I was doing the 54 Orioles team set, I'm really picking one at a time. I mean, I might have bought three or a lot of three or four guys, but you know, I wasn't buying the whole team. Um, part of me it's, likes the case. It's not available, you know. Usually, I mean, you know, they, again, you'd have to be in an auction where somebody was breaking up their Orioles collection, and then you'd be bidding against. So you, there's there's no, uh, you know, I, I have this theory about when you're selling cards, you know, you need to be appropriately parsing your collection. You know, if you uh, put uh, the cards in meaningful lots, you're going to get people to say, hey, I want that. That's that that fits my collecting interest. I'm going to bid on that as opposed to, you know, 10 different 54 tops cards, 10 different Orioles, 54 tops cards. You'd have more interest. Okay, before we run out of time, I want to shift gears because uh, we are seeing a lot of celebrities coming into the marketplace. Um, and, and when I say celebrities, not not baseball card celebrities, social world celebrities um, and athletes. Uh, good for the hobby, bad for the hobby, too corporate. Um, what's your feeling uh, on, on having kind of the uh, the face of the brands be athletes that aren't necessarily card people? Well, I hope they're not the face of the brand, but I, I, if they're beating the drum that this is a cool thing or an interesting thing that they're involved in, I, I see that as certainly good. Uh, but for them to be the face of the brand, I mean, I don't, I don't think Michael Jordan is the face of Cologne, but he's, he well, has, thinking, I guess I'm thinking of the Derek Jeter. Um. Well, we'll see. I mean, that's the, the jury's out on that. I mean, if there's substance to it, uh, he, I, I just don't, he can, he can't do it by himself, but he's if he's back, it's like a jockey on a bad horse, or a jo or a really good, even a really good jockey on a terrible horse. Uh, but if you have a good horse and you have a great jockey, you know that's that's that that could be very interesting. And again, it would he, you know, he's uh, he's newsworthy, as you said, in the in the broader sense, right. Um, and the Netflix that came out uh, supposedly is coming out with this show. Um, and I, I wrote a fictional uh, story uh, I sent to you. You you play the wise advisor. Um, so uh, Ken, Ken Golden uh, reached out to me to uh, make sure that I clarify that he has a real life show coming up also. So uh, I but he probably would be willing to play himself. In oh, he, he loved the he loved the article, loved the character. So uh, it, it was all in good fun. All right, Doctor Beckett, I appreciate your time. Uh, you you are a true true uh, gem for coming on, and uh, you know you and I could do this all day for 
no okay, cows. Danny, Danny, you make things fun, so we'll do it again sometime. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you, guys, and another edition of Sports Bowl. And uh, we are now uh, publishing pretty much three to five times a week, so make sure you like and subscribe. Have a great day. Thanks, Danny.